the part two of a, of a two-part uh, sermon, um, all covering chapter 12. So last week we um, handled uh, the f- verses 1 through 11, and today we'll be focusing our attention on 12 through 31. Okay, think back to high school, or think back to middle school, maybe. Or think back to something that happened maybe last year in school. Remember how sometimes your teacher would put you in a, some kind of group to work together, either to study something out or to, or to uh, uh, bring about some project? I remember it happening in chemistry class in high school. It was uh, 38 years ago. I hated it then, and it's still in my memory banks. A team working together somehow or trying to work together with different attitudes and different abilities, different uh, visions for approaching problem solving, and of course, different desires uh, of putting forth maybe any effort at all towards the project. One wonders why a teacher would ever do this to kids, put them together in a group, asking so many different kids to work together as one. And then, of course, you think about the local church. And the differences are even greater. And there's more people to boot. It's made up of, of all these, these different members of, of, of the church. They're so different from one another that if you try to think of just two particular members in the church that are different, working together towards a goal, you're like, how are they ever going to pull it off? much less if they're working together with even more or even the entire church. How could they possibly work together effectively? It's really mind-blowing when you think about it because it's really diverse, the, the, the people in church. I've, I've often talked about various friends of mine throughout my Christian life, and I'm like, I literally have nothing in common with this guy. I mean, Ryan, you and I could do this, right? Like, Ryan is masterful at working on the, the snow plow truck or his own vehicles or whatever, and I, not, I could not do that at all. That's just like one little example, right? And now God brings us all together and asks us to function together somehow, effectively, and even beautifully. But by God's design and power, as, as you know, maybe hopeless as it seems at first, the church does actually fit together into something wonderful. It shows the world what the love of Jesus Christ actually looks like. In his church, the many become one. And that's what today's text is all about. So if, if you have questions about whether or not this is possible for a church actually to be unified, actually to, actually to reach a, a substantial goal together, may this uh, text encourage you. So let's turn our attention to the Word of God, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And I'm going to read the whole chapter, um, though we're going to spend our attention, uh, you know, spend our time in verses 12 through 31. So, um, again, pay careful attention, as, as Nathan um, said to us just a few moments ago. This is God's Word. This is His eternal Word, and, uh, and He's preserved it for us down through the generations by His Spirit so that we might uh, hear and live. So here it is, God's Word. Pay careful attention. Now, concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed, You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus 
is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the workings of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. For just as the body is one and has many members... And all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. This is God's Word. Be reminded of the theme. Uh, remember, this is a part two, so we already talked about the theme last week. The theme of this text is this. The Spirit masterfully pieces together gifted people into a picture of love. The Spirit masterfully pieces together gifted people into a picture of love. Now, last week we likened uh, the church to a puzzle. Uh, we use that idea to walk through this text to appreciate how the diverse people in the church and the varied spiritual gifts they've been given, how they actually function together to be a picture of Christ's glory in this world. We began by considering how a church comes into being in the first place, you may recall. 
we asked who puts the puzzle box together, if you will. And and to answer that question, we looked at verses 1 through 3. There we discovered it is the Holy Spirit who brings people into the church. It's the Holy Spirit who brings people into the church. He puts them into the puzzle box, enabling them to confess Jesus as their Lord, and then he also gives them gifts with which to serve their new master. Next, we considered what individual members of the church are like what strengths and, strength and abilities they, they each have. In other words, what kind of puzzle pieces does the Spirit put in the box? We looked at verses 4 through 11 to answer those questions. There we learned that the church is made up of a variety of uniquely gifted spiritual people, purposefully diverse according to God's wise purposes, all to be used for the common good. Well, today we turn to the final question. We're no longer asking the question, you know, who put the puzzle together or what do the various pieces look like? Today we're asking how do the vastly different people in the church function together? How do all of these individually unique puzzle pieces fit together into something beautiful, something of eternal value? And it all hinges on this theme. The Spirit masterfully pieces together gifted people into a picture of love. So you're thinking the puzzle, right? Piecing them together into this beautiful picture. Paul uses a a common metaphor of his, that of a human body. In the time we have this morning, let us answer this final question. Let us think about this, how does it all fit together? How do we work together uh, uh, even though we're so very different? Throughout verses 12 through 31, the apostle repeats a refrain that helps us. Did you hear me? Throughout these verses we're looking at today, 12 through 31, the apostle repeats this refrain. Now, it comes in a little slightly different form each time, but look at them with me. Verse 12, you got your eyes on that? Just as the body is one and has many members... And all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. So it's one, it's made up of many, but even though there's many, there's one. You see how he keeps doing that? So that's verse 12. Look again at verse 14. The body does not consist of one member, but of many. And again, verse 20. There are many parts, yet one body. And then finally, verse 27, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it, of the one, right? So, so what's the point? Wildly different puzzle pieces forming one picture. Saints with a wide array of different giftings forming one unified church. That's the idea being highlighted and explained in this final section of chapter 12. So let's look at how Paul makes this case and so grow in our understanding of how each of us fit together to, to, into one here at, the church, uh, at our church in Union Lake. As we do, imagine looking, uh, you know, opening up the puzzle box and looking on the bottom of it and finding the instructions there. Um, there, there we find four steps for putting it all together, Okay. Uh, I say that because Paul holds out four realities here in these verses. Four different realities for us to consider as we try to see why it is that we can actually come together as one body. So let's look at the first one, the first reality. 
The first instruction, if you will. Diversity brings unity because of a shared beginning. Diversity, the diverse gifts, right? Bring, actually bring unity because of a shared beginning. We see this in the first two verses of our our text, verses 12 and verse 13. But look at verse 13 just real quick here. In one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Corinth, you may recall, was a bustling port city. Lots and lots of business was coming in. It was actually uh, joining two pieces of land, and it was this isthmus, and there was actually a port on either side of it. So there was people from all over the world coming through Corinth with with different kinds of of business and, and bringing their backgrounds and their culture and their social standing even. And uh, so those who eventually would become part of the church were from all different walks of life. And so he says there in verse 13, Jews, Greeks, slaves, free men. Now, our church is no different, is it? I mean, it might, one might stand back and say, this is not the most diverse group of people that I've ever seen, right? Um, but as we think about it, we are pretty diverse, if we think about where we all come from, if we think about our family tree, as it were. You know, for, in preparation for my mom's funeral earlier this year, I, I did some research into her family tree. And uh, her father was born in uh, an, e- an Eastern European, well, sometimes it was a country and sometimes it was a region within a country. It was called Bohemia. It was sometimes part of Germany, sometimes part of Austria, sometimes part of Czechoslovakia, or what was used, used to be called that. And I just got to thinking about the diversity of our church in terms of if we all did that, if we, if we all traced our parents' trees backwards and saw where we all came from, we're pretty diverse, actually, if you think of it in those terms. Um, we might be able to say, we're all baptized into one body, Bohemians and Hungarians, Chinese and Norwegian, rich and poor, and we could throw all kinds of categories in there. But whether we're talking about the church at Corinth or our church here in Commerce, the varied backgrounds of the people, the different shapes of the puzzle pieces, if you will, though they are so very different, they are unified in the church. They become one as they become part of the church because they all have a shared beginning. Everybody comes into the church the same way. No one earned a spot in the church because they were of a certain bloodline. No, no one got an easy pass in because they had a certain amount of wealth or prestige in the uh, society or, or something like that. No, all were brought in by the power and mercy of the Spirit of Christ. The idea was introduced, of course, at the start of the chapter when we're answering the question, who put the puzzle pieces, you know, the puzzle together in the first place? Remember verse 3, no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit except that the Holy Spirit awakens people's souls so that they believe. It was here we noted that the Spirit of God was the one who formed the church. You put the puzzle pieces in the box. Everyone who can say Jesus is Lord does so because the Spirit gave them spiritual life. All who come into the church have the same beginning, that same initiation by the Spirit. And so it sweeps away all boasting. Oh, I'm in because I have blank or I came from whatever. This idea is also seen 
in the beginning of the letter. It's been a while since we were in chapter 1, but be reminded, Paul there uh, spoke to the Corinthians of their humble beginnings when God saved them. Uh, this, is, this is back in chapter 1, starting verse 26. Not many of you were wise. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth, he starts. Then Paul goes on to speak of how God initiated all those different kinds of people uh, into the church. Three times in quick succession he wrote, but God chose what's foolish. God chose what's weak. God chose what's low and despised. God chose. God chose. God chose. Why? Because everybody comes into the church the same way. Their beginnings are the same. God chooses them. The Spirit awakens their, their soul so that they might believe that Jesus is the Christ. And so finally, in verse 30 of chapter 1, uh, uh, Paul concludes with this truth. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus. He is the source. He is the initiator. He is the chooser. He is the mercy giver. Right? So all the same beginnings. I say all that to say this. Here in verses 12 and 13, Paul is telling us how the church fits together despite the fact that it's made up of all different kinds of people. Just like a human body is made up of all different kinds of organs. They fit together because they have a shared beginning. They all entered into spiritual life found in the church the same way. They were all initiated into the realm of the Spirit by God's grace. And that's how we can come together if we remember how we came in. Diversity, of course, can bring chaos, disunity, division. I can testify of that study group in chemistry class. When people who are unlike one another because of their heritage or social standing or even their individual gifts or interests and desires to use those gifts, this has the capacity to tear the church apart. Right? We can say, no, 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 my thing's more important. I don't care about your thing. That happens. Diversity can bring that sort of chaos and disunity, right? Especially as we judge others who are different than us or who want the church to have different ministries or activities than we do. So how do you and I overcome this danger? How do the members here at Union Lake Baptist Church, how do we overcome this danger of, uh, 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 of disunity because we're different? Well, Paul reminded the Corinthians that diversity was supposed to lead to unity because every member of the church had a shared beginning, and so we all have a shared beginning. Each was nothing without the Spirit's initiation. You remember back just before? Remember your start in your spiritual life? Remember those days? Who gave you that understanding? Are you smarter than the next guy? Is that how you got in? you have some advantage because of your family tree? No, the Spirit awakened your, your mind and your soul, right? And, and that's, that was the case in Corinth, and that's the case with all of us here. And as, as we remember that, we are empowered to abandon our boasting, our selfish competing with those who aren't like us. Do you need to hear this today? You need to hear this today? This isn't just a lecture, friends. This is God speaking to his people. Examine yourself carefully against God's word and, and ask yourself, what is the Spirit of God asking me to do in response? What is the Spirit asking you to do with respect to those who God has created with passions and abilities and, and dreams that are vastly different than your own? 
The Spirit masterfully pieces together gifted people into a picture of love. The first reality, the first instruction on the box lid is this. Diversity brings unity because of a shared beginning. But there's three more realities to help us, three more instructions to help us. The second one is this. Diversity brings unity because of shared benefits. Diversity brings unity because of shared beginning, but it also brings unity because of shared benefits. We see this in verses 14 through 20. Look at verse 17 and then 19. 17. Got your eyes on it? If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? And then 19. If all were a single member, where would the body be? Paul here really leans into this extended illustration that he's been using, right? Of, of a human, comparing a human body to the church. He even uses personification, like the, the eyeball is a person, and he's talking, like, so to keep our attention and to see this, this, uh, this comparison. In doing so, he appeals to the essence of what a human body is. Did you hear me? He's appealing to the, to the essential nature of what a human body is, so that we might ask, what essentially is the church? That's why, that's, why he's, he, that's why he's giving this um, comparison. The body, by definition, is made up of countless parts that have unique functions that contribute for the benefit of the whole, right? Isn't that what a body is? You've got all different parts. They're all different, doing different things, but they're all working together for each other's benefit. The very concept of a human body brings to mind a skeletal system that provides the body structure and the heart that pumps our blood through the body and various organs that filter bad things out of our body and secrete chemicals we need to maintain our health and the brain tells all the other parts what, what to do and what's needed and the skin over the top is to protect it and maybe to make it beautiful and exterior members like our arms and legs for walking and jumping and grabbing and carrying and the eyes and the mouth and the ears and the nose for the five senses. That's what a body is. Nobody can describe the body by just saying like, oh, it's just like an arm. Nobody does that. That's not what a body is, right? All of those parts having different responsibilities, even in the, <laughs> the, the poor job, my, my poor scientific brain trying to describe some of those things, all those parts having different roles, yet working together for the benefit of the whole. In fact, the notion of the body being made up of a singular part only having one job is just stupid, nonsensical. Nobody does it. It destroys the very concept of what a body is. That's why he says in verse 19, if all were a single member, where would the body be? Right? If it were a single member, that's not a body. That's like a limb. It's a part of a body. In fact, we only know what a body is because God has defined it by the way he designed it. We only know what a body is because God made it and said, this is a body. He's the creator. None of us, uh, none of us are the creator, right? So he sets the definitions. He set, sets the understandings. Notice verse 18 there. God has placed the members, each of them, in the body just as he desired. Who did? God did. God's the one that put it together. And God's desire... His will, which is running through this whole passage. It's the foundation of his perfect unifying plan for his creation. It's awesome. It's perfect. It's holy. It's other than us. 
In God's world, the only world that there is, he made the human body the only kind of human body that there is. He made it with many members. That's what a body is. And so it is with the church. That's how he designed the church. God's loving plan to redeem sinners springs into existence from his eternally perfect will. He sent his son into the world to pay for the sins of all he would choose to be part of the church. His spirit brings each one in the same way, initiating each one into the realm of, the, of spiritual life with the fruits of forgiveness and eternal peace with God. Eternal peace with God. This is God's perfect plan for putting the church together. Not unlike a plan for putting a human body together with a lot of different parts, doing different things, but being made part of the whole. And don't forget that this passage is about spiritual people having spiritual gifts, right? Back in verses 4 through 6, we read of the spirit of the triune God designing each person in the church by giving them a variety of different kinds of gifts and, and different ways of employing them. This diversity bringing benefit to the whole. This is what a church is if you're looking for everybody to do what you do and think what you think friends that's not a church that's not a church to wish away how the many come together blessing each other as a unified complete community to wish everybody were like you or to see your gifts as of or to see their gifts of as no value to the whole that is to say that you don't see the church as god designed it you think your plan's better. You think his idea of what a church is is not right. Maybe that's arresting you a little bit today. I hope so. That's the point that Paul's making in verses 15 through 17. He's essentially saying it's arrogant and stupid to think you have no need of the people in the church who have gifts that are different than yours. It's arrogant and stupid. To judge others' gifts as less than yours, or worse yet, to see them of no value, is to deny the beauty and wisdom of God's design for the church to function together, employing these diverse gifts as one. Mutual benefit. One strength and insight and ability making up for the weakness and blind spots and lack of another. That is what the church is. Just as the body benefits from sight and hearing and smell from the various different organs on the face, so the church benefits from the diverse gifts of teaching and helping and administrating and all the rest the Spirit graciously supplies. And I want you to hear this, friends. Tune in for a minute. Something very specific to our church. One of our distinctives here is equipping the church through training. I announced two of those opportunities, uh, you know, on Thursday already, today. Much of that training involves equipping people to teach the scriptures that will have more teachers here. It's vital to the health of the church for us to do this. It is vital to becoming a mature, growing, sending church. If we don't train people to be teachers and preachers, we'll have no elders, we'll have no uh, missionaries to send out, we'll have no church planters in the region that we can support and things like that coming from our body. 
But there is a temptation for those who do not have a teaching gift to feel as though they are somehow less than those that do. Friends, we need all of the gifts to function together. Simply because we put a lot of effort into one of the central roles of a church does not mean we don't appreciate the others. And if, if I have somehow led you to believe that that's how we think, I, I would ask you, 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 to, you know, to forgive me because that, that's not my intention. Don't, don't allow the... Don't allow the thinking of the world to creep in and essentially suggest that you're something less. You don't want to say something like verse 16, because I'm not a teacher, I'm not part of the body, because that's just untrue. Diversity brings unity because of the shared benefits among us. And your gifts make us whole, make us what God designed us to be. Many members, different gifts, functioning together in unity. So be encouraged. Be encouraged. Fully and joyfully use what the Spirit has created you to be in the body, the unique role He wants you to play. The Spirit masterfully pieces together gifted people into a picture of love. The first reality, the first instruction on the box lid was that diversity brings unity because of a shared beginning. Secondly, we, we just went over that diversity brings unity because of shared benefits, but there's still more to help us. The third reality is that diversity brings unity because of a shared awareness. And we see that in verses 21 through 26. Look at 22 and 23 for a moment. The parts of the body that seem weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And on our unpresentable parts are treated with... Uh, let me read that again. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty. Now, these verses, again, appealing to this, this long illustration of, of a human body. These verses demonstrate the necessity and value of members that aren't normally thought of as the important ones. The head, the eyes, the heart, these are recognized by everybody as the chief parts of the human body, right? Right? Perhaps you might think of people of great financial means in the church or the pastors and teachers that are visible and speak publicly uh, so often. You might think of them as, as really the ones that are, that are worth something. But in the body, who can deny how indispensable the human body? Who can de deny how indispensable the kidneys are or the lymph nodes or the hip joint or you fill in anything you want there? Pituitary gland, I don't know. I almost called Sue yesterday and said, could you give me some medical terminology that would make sense here? Yeah, who can, but who can, I mean, if you've ever been in the hospital and a part of your body isn't functioning right, who can deny that that's an important part, right? I remember when my dad hit his head, uh, he jumped out of the back of a truck and he banged the back of his head on the, on the uh, tailgate. Many of you maybe remember that. Um, as a result, his brain swelled, and there was, and he was bleeding in his brain. And you know, there's nowhere for that to go. You've got a skull that's hard, and it doesn't move. And so what ends up happening, if your brain swells too much, it's so much damage, and you die. Or you become, you know, really uh, 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 um, harmed by it. 
But there's a little part in the body that I, before this event, I never knew existed. If you've ever seen some kind of scan of the brain, perhaps you can picture it in your mind. It's on both halves. There's a little thing that looks like a teardrop or maybe half of a butterfly wing right in the middle. Can you picture it when you see a brain scan? Maybe, maybe you've never seen it. It's this little void. It's a little space in the middle of your brain. There's nothing in it. It's just a hole. It's just this little empty bag, or I don't know what you want to call it. And you know why it's there? So that when you hit your head and your brain expands and swells and, and blood starts to you know, fill the space in there, there's, it's a little shock absorber. There's a little bit of space for it to go. And that, that little hole fills up. God designed that little tiny piece. How vital. My dad's here today because he has those little spaces in his brain. It's extraordinary when you think about it. Never knew it existed. And yet when we became aware of it and its function, we certainly couldn't say we had no need of it. That little part was indispensable. And so it is with the church. We see those who serve in the background, those who pray in secret, those who bring meals to people and provide rides and visit the sick and encourage the faint-hearted. These less visible members of our church who aren't normally celebrated publicly, these people are indispensable. And we honor them. We honor them. Why? Because we have all been made aware that our church is founded on this reality. Listen in now. Our church is founded on this reality. The founder of our faith, the Lord Jesus Christ, he humbled himself. He emptied himself. He, he made himself poor. He, he made himself nothing to bring us to God. The one who men hid their faces from. The one who set his face toward Jerusalem where he would be dishonored and, and, and suffered, uh, suffer as a criminal. The one who would be abandoned and crucified. He is highly exalted. He receives the greatest amount of honor that we have. All knees, in fact, will one day bow before him at the, at the speaking of his name. For all eternity, those around his heavenly throne will speak of the one who is indispensable to our everlasting benefit, though he didn't look like it when he was here. He will hear these exalted words of praise for all time. Revelation 5, 12. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. The one that we hid our faces from. The ones that we abandoned. The ones that we let the strong kill. That one who made himself nothing for us sits on David's throne today, ascended into heaven, and he's coming again. The one that receives all the honor that we can muster. And so with this shared awareness of the value of the weak, those who know Christ honor the many his spirit has united to himself. The many share in the honor of the one they serve. Look back at verse 12. There's something really profound there, but really easy to miss. 
I want you to put your thumb over the last word in the sentence. For just as the body is one, meaning the human body, just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with, what do you anticipate to be there? What's he talking about? The church. So it is with the church. But that ain't what it says. Look at it. What does it say? So it is with what? Who? Christ. Do you see that? Friends, that is profound that Paul wrote it that way. So it is this, this many and one, the, the many members coming together unified in one, so it is with Christ. He doesn't say so it is with the church, but rather so it is with Christ, because the church is in Him. And so even those in the church that the world would see as nothing, they have immense value because they are in Him. They reflect His weakness looking forward to the greater glory. And, all, and we all have need of each other and can benefit from one another, and so we honor one another, even if it's people that are working in the background. Because we know this, this truth. We have, been, we, we have become aware of this reality. Though many, because of Christ, we are one. The implications of this glorious awareness are spelled out for us. When we rightly treasure the least of us, we reflect Christ's love and so avoid divisions. And we delight to care for one another. Isn't that the truth? Isn't that the truth? When we despise other people, we're not going to care for them right? We're not going to do anything that's going to be of benefit to them because we're working for ourselves. But when we honor the least of us after, after this, you know, renewed way of thinking because of Christ, what Christ has done, when we honor the least of us, we're, we're endeared to them. We want to care for them. We're concerned about them. And so we put the love of Jesus Christ on display for the world. We're actually that picture of love that the Spirit is piecing together diverse pieces to show, to build. The Spirit masterfully pieces together gifted people into a picture of love. And it's because the many become one. And it's all of these different little instructions on the box lid, if that helps you, these, these different truths, these, these different... Um, uh, realities. First was that diversity brings unity because of a shared beginning. We all come into the church the same way. Next, diversity brings unity because of a shared benefit. We need each other. We all have different functions that are necessary. And, and, and thirdly, we just looked at this idea of diversity brings unity because of a shared awareness. We're aware of the, of the benefit of those who make themselves nothing for other people. Finally, diversity brings unity because of a shared ambition. We see this in the last verses, verses 27 through 31. Look at that final verse with me. Earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. The, these, these last few verses of our text return to listing various gifts in this section, right? Various gifts the Spirit gives to those in the church. Interestingly, though, there's some unique things in this list, or the way the list is put together. He lists both spiritual positions as well as gifts. That's new. 
Paul also includes in the list um, uh, roles that, while present in the early church, no longer exist today. Apostle and prophet. You see that in verse 28? And so, incidentally, that bolsters the argument that not all gifts that were present in the early church are in play today. I hinted at that last week, right? So, um, I, no long, I, I believe that the, the miraculous gifts are no longer in play. Speaking in tongues, like speaking in languages that I've never studied, all of a sudden I can you know, speak Russian or something like that because there's a Russian visitor. Or your ability to, to translate for me even though you've never studied Russian. That would be the interpretation of tongues, right? Or miraculous healings where I can walk up to somebody and you're healed. You see all these you know, morons um, defaming God doing this on TV. Um, but there's something else Paul does, something unexpected. Unexpected because of the text we're in. He ranks the import of various offices and gifts. Do you see it there? First, this. Second, this. Next, this. You wouldn't expect that. He's been talking about the mutual benefit. We're all the same. Like, we value each other equally in these sorts of things. But he's not undoing what he's already written about. He's, he's not undercutting the unity of the body that he's been speaking about for so many verses and how the many different parts function together as a whole. Rather, what we're meant to see here by how he's arranged these positions and gifts, we're meant to see that today's leaders of the church have great import in leading the members to be one. They have, they, they have, a, they have an important role in being out front leading the members to be one. As one commentator put it, all the gifts are important and the contribution of every member matters, but some gifts play a more central role than others. That doesn't mean the people in those more central roles are, you know, of, of, of more value. Nothing like that. The apostles and the prophets, I mean, they had a pretty important role, didn't they? I mean, they had a very, very central role to the church. In fact, Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20 says, the apostles and the prophets laid the foundation of God's truth for the church to be built upon. But they're not here anymore. I mean, they're here in God's Word, but they're not physically here with us. But we do have preachers and teachers, pastors and, and church leaders, those who are of less stature than the apostles and prophets, certainly. Though they had direct revelations from God. But, but the leaders of the church today continue the necessary equipping of the saints, the training of the saints so that they can go out and use their giftings, right, and uh, function in the church in a unified way. Last week we talked a little bit about these various miraculous gifts, right? But it's important to see that the gift of tongues is last in the list. Did you notice that? It was not last in the list in the eyes of the Corinthians. They were really jonesing for those miraculous gifts. They were all clamoring over them and, and, uh, and talking over each other even uh, in, in worship services that no one could understand what was going on. Surely this is purposeful to be listed last like this. Paul intentionally does it because the Corinthians gave undue honor to one particular gift over another. Now, obviously, we once again are confronted with the reality that God has given lots of different gifts 
to those in the church. Some in the early church, even with these extraordinary, miraculous gifts, at least for that time. But the way in which even that diversity brings unity is when the church has a shared ambition. When the church has a shared ambition. Not all share those gifts as the rhetorical questions in verses 29 and 30 make plain, right? Are all apostles? No, they're not. Are, are, can all do miraculous healings? Can all speak in tongues? No, all can't do that, right? But if we all have a shared ambition, no matter what the gifts are, right, unity will be the result. The many will be brought together as one. And it's, and it's found in that final verse. It does say earnestly desire the higher gifts, those central gifts, those, those gifts that equip others in the church. You should desire that. Not all will have that gift. But Paul goes on to say, I will show you a still more excellent way. It's not wrong to aspire to be used in significant ways. I mean, the, the, the lead up to the qualifications of 1 Timothy chapter 3 say, for a man to aspire to the office of elder, it's what? It's a, it's a good thing. It's a noble task, right? So it's not wrong to aspire to be used in significant ways, to seek to be... To seek to equip others with, with, with the central role in the church. Sincere desire, though, it says. Sincere desire, not self-glory, but sincere desire to pursue a better way than those outside the life of the Spirit to use those gifts. Paul here speaks of the ambition to use one's spiritual gifts to love those in the church. He's going to, in fact, right now as we turn the page, he's going to have a whole chapter on that topic, what love looks like. It's read at weddings. It's famous, right? That shared ambition, friends, is when each of us says, I want to lay down my life. I want to I wanna be used up like a sponge. I, I want to be used to help the people in the church, to, to care for them to love them, to, to help them in their way so that they might be used in the church also. Though our gifts are of all different kinds, we are to employ them with one goal, to show Christ's self-denying love for the good of others, for the common good. That is the picture of love that the Spirit masterfully pieces gifted people together to put on display. Take a few minutes of just quiet reflection over the word before we close with a benediction. think about, a lot to pray about. Stand and receive, um, I'm going to repeat the same benediction from last week. It's so fitting.